thank you very much. Uh, I think first, uh, please a hand for Terry Aiken, your senior curator. I mean, they do a great job. We, we are extremely flattered to be included into this series. Uh, we are following some great speakers and great programs. We are, however, he did leave one thing out. Uh, we hold the air and land speed record in the C5 as a crew. And I just wanted to put that forward right up front. Now, normally we are uh, very happy to entertain interjections, but they've asked in this particular case to, to hold your, your, your questions till the end. But uh, please do uh, come back to us with anything that you would like to, to hear further on the subject. Uh, and yes, uh, Colonel, Colonel, Chief Master Sergeant, but it wasn't always that way. This was captain and lieutenant, and so, uh, and, and we had a, a sergeant that was, uh, you, you were a senior then, I think. That's correct. Uh, so it, all of us uh, continued in our Air, Air Force careers, and as he pointed out, we didn't do anything out of the unusual to get ourselves into the position to, to go on this flight. But what we'd like to do is take, uh, you know, myself, I was a C-5 aircraft commander, uh, and, and how uh, we left Travis Air Force Base, Ray and I, and, and a crew of 29 other, or 29 total people, and uh, we went on this mission, and when we got to the Philippines, we were informed uh, of the change in plans, and we picked up uh, Lieutenant Ani, who was relatively new in the, in the Air Force. She came in as a first lieutenant. So... Uh, what our intention is is to to give you a little bit of the background of, of that time period and uh, take you on the flight as best we can. And uh, if, if there's jargon and you can't stand it, holler out anyway and we'll make a correction because we, we use Air Force jargon all the time. And I know it gets, uh, it, it gets tiring. So right now, as they said, you know, Colonel Ani is uh, still on active duty and I think you're retiring into this year, so she'll join the, the ranks of us retired people and start playing golf like we all do, or want to anyway. Ray, of course, uh, works for AVX Air and, and is keeping AVX Air airborne. And, uh, can I say it that way? That's correct. Uh-huh. And uh, at any rate, and, and as you said, I'm, I'm doing the Airlift Tanker Association. Got any of my Airlift Tanker Association members out here? Any C-5 crew members out here? Oh, good. Some more people to keep us honest. But uh, this is, as he said, this is a story a bunch of, about a bunch of ordinary people. We didn't, uh, we didn't ask for this mission. We weren't picked for this mission. We just showed up that day, and, and other C-5 crew members would have done the same thing, uh, if not as well, maybe perhaps better. But uh, we, that day we had a, a, a group of people that, did everything right the first time, which was which was great. Uh, so let me let me give you the the basic plot line so that you understand what we're talking about. We're we're back in April 1975, and, and Saigon is falling. Uh, I well I don't know about you guys, but I was a captain and I was oblivious. But we'll get back to that. Uh, we left Travis to to go to to uh, Hickam. Let me see what we got here. This is, by the way, is the inside of the airplane. I should, I usually throw this in just as an interjection because some people don't realize how big a C-5 is. It can hold 
six buses. You can take six tour buses and drive them in there, drive two by two in, in this thing. And, and I know that uh, as a loadmaster, Ray Snedeker has done just that. So it's, it's a great airplane. Uh, we left Travis and then went to Hickam, had some maintenance problems, and went on to Guam and then to the Philippines. We picked up uh, Colonel Ani and uh, went into Saigon, uh, offloaded the howitzers that we had picked up. We'd had a, we had a really big load, uh, important load of uh, weapons going into to Saigon. And so with that, they waved everything and just sent us on straight in. And but normally they would have offloaded because of the dangerous uh, missile threat to big airplanes. They would have offloaded us and, and put the howitzers on smaller airplanes. This time they didn't do that, uh, which was very odd. And uh, we offloaded them, unloaded orphans, 12 minutes out. Uh, we had a rapid decompression. The rapid decompression was caused by the rear doors going out of the airplane. And when they, they left, they took all of the, uh, the doors in the back. And the doors, when they left, uh, took all of the flight controls to the tail so that we had no way to control any of the control surfaces on the back. Uh, bottom line, that day, 314 people on board, uh, 176 lived, and 138 people died. So we're, we're going to show you that, that trip. And we've got uh, distortion, I'm sure. The, we, we always say that we're suffering from CRS, can't remember stuff. Uh, and time has changed some of the facts, of course, and some of the facts were absolutely certain. We were just talking the other day something I was absolutely certain about. I talked to him and I said, oh, I wasn't right at all. So we enjoy getting together. This is as much for us as it is for you because we learn uh, from, from each other what we're doing. But what, we're, what you're seeing here on this slide, just so that you can see, there is Saigon up in the corner. We went 12 minutes out, uh, had a rapid decompression, turned around, went back, made it almost to the field, and crashed. You'll see this slide again. Okay, how did we get ourselves into this fine fix? Uh, well, the U.S. military was just about all gone from Vietnam in 1975. Uh, and about five days before... Uh, da Nang had fallen, and about a week after that is when uh, you saw the, in fact, I'll show you the, the uh, picture of the, that's a pretty famous picture that shows the people being airlifted or uh, off the Saigon embassy roof, only it's really not the embassy, it was an apartment building, but all the, all the press says it was the Saigon embassy. But uh, that was the last, really the last time that people were able to get out so we were right in that window uh, from the time that everything was about to happen, our flight, and then everything was over, and it was in a relatively short time. So, as I said, we offloaded the, uploaded the, the, air, the howitzers at Warner Robins, uh, and for me it was pretty much of a normal mission, and uh, uh, except I was getting a line check, and crew members would understand getting a line check is never a normal activity. And so everything was being scrutinized and I couldn't do anything wrong. And uh, Ray was reminding me a little story about we had a dollar ride guy. Dollar ride is the very first ride. And he showed up in the squadron. And now Ray is Stan Val. So Ray started 
making suggestions. Well, since I was a standards guy, uh, I noticed that he was wearing combat boots or jungle boots, which at that time in the command, we were not allowed to wear unless you were actually in combat. Uh, since uh, Captain Trainer was getting a check ride, I reminded him that one of his crew members had the wrong type of shoes on. He couldn't wear those uh, jungle boots. And uh, so Captain Trainer sent him home to get some, some other, get another pair of boots. At that time, the pilots could fly either in boots or low quarters or his dress shoes. And unfortunately, he made the selection to bring his dress. He wore his dress shoes back to on this if, flight. If there was ever a time you could have used your combat boots. <laughs> and if we forget it, remind me later to tell you the other end of this story after the crash, what he told me. <laughs> so we went on from there. We went uh, to Hickam. Uh, and I think Ray had a premonition, so he jumped ship. Uh, they brought out this new bird, the one that ended up going all the way in, and it had a windshield heat problem. And the windshield heat is important on an airplane, not just to keep the frost off of it, but it's also to, to make uh, it resilient to bird strikes and anything else that might be, you know, nasties in the air. So they asked us if we would take this to Guam and get it fixed there because of the high priority cargo. We agreed, and, and off we went. Uh, we got to Guam and we were told, uh, by the way, you're through flighting Guam and you're going on to the Philippines. So, uh, okay, we'll carry it one step further. So we went all the way to the, 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 the Philippines. As I said, though, we were really oblivious to the, what was going on. I, I don't know if you guys were, but I know I was. And uh, So on the, when we were at Hickam on the 1st of April, uh, Natrang had fallen, which is just above Cameron, and the 2nd. Cameron Bay did, and that was the biggest uh, military base. Uh, that was when we were in, en route to Guam. And by the 3rd of April, and by this time now, we're about 12 hours out of phase or so. We're, it was nighttime over here and daytime over there. So we didn't understand that there were five divisions within about 75 miles of Saigon. I mean, I, they probably told me, but, you know, I didn't understand that this was pretty nasty place right then. And so during the crew rest at Clark, there was uh, an announcement made on TV by General, uh, General, I've said that before, General Ford, President Ford, and uh, President Ford said, I have directed that C-5 aircraft and other aircraft especially equipped to care for orphans during the flight be sent to Saigon and for the evacuation flights to begin within the next 36 to 48 hours. Well, later the commander-in-chief of, of the military lift command told me it was the first time he'd ever gotten his orders over the TV. So they went down to the command post and they looked to see who's the next pinball in the pinball machine and it was me. So they, they said, you're up. And so <laughs> while we were... Now, coming into Clark, we had some routine maintenance. Uh, we had to shut down an engine. Uh, had, in the C-5, we had routine emergencies, and shutting down an engine was one of them. <laughs> so nobody was really excited about that, and they decided later that it was just the parameters were wrong in the, in the MADAR, which is an acronym that means it's, it's the little maintenance readout where you can get... Uh, data on your engines and that sort of thing. 
uh, we arrived, and, and I expected, I tried to turn it over to Sergeant Snedeker and say, okay, get these things off my airplane. Uh, I'm ready to go into crew rest and turn around and go back. And uh, they said, no, we're going to leave it on there, and I couldn't understand why. That certainly they wouldn't be sending big airplanes in there. They hadn't been doing that for quite some time. And so we went into crew rest. Our crew, our minimum crew, our 29 people, went, went into crew rest. And uh, the, the good news, it was Mongolian barbecue that night. <laughs> and so we got there and, and had our Mongolian barbecue. And, and as timing would have it, had a textbook, thank goodness, textbook, crew rest, went to bed. I did do one bad thing. I put my hat on the bed, and one of the old guys had always said, don't put your hat on the bed. It's bad luck. You'll crash. And I remember, remember laughing about that. Yeah, right. So, <laughs> I don't laugh about that anymore. Uh, we were alerted about 3 in the morning, and, uh, and then I was told they hadn't started on the co-pilot's windshield. I said, what? It's a 24-hour cure on the windshield. They said, no, nah, we got this new stuff. It's only an hour. And I asked them, and the crew bus is on the way. No. Yeah, but yes, they said, got a new sealant. They're going to do this. So I went down to the uh, O-Dark 30, down to the, the, in the Clark cafeteria there in the base ops, and I had a Blitz burger, and I've just, which is a wonderful hamburger with lots of hot sauce on it. It's always good for breakfast. And I, was, I got a call from 22nd Air Force, and 22nd Air Force said, uh, they wanted to talk to me, so I went back to the to the uh, telephone and started talking to these guys, and and uh, they said, "Well, how many people can you take out of Saigon?" And, and I'm, you know, clueless. And I said, "Well, we've got 76 seats upstairs, and we could put some people in our relief crew compartment, but we don't usually ever put anybody there. It's too noisy." And no, oh, no, no, no. How many people could you really take? You mean like floor load? And they said, well, you're pretty sharp for a captain. <laughs> so I gave him the max salute. Don't know. So Ray and I uh, went out and started pacing off the, the, the tie-down rings. Tell them our little experiences with that, right? Okay. At, at that point, we were asking, who are we bringing out of here? Are we bringing out, you know, male adults or... American adults, are we bringing out babies, are we bringing out Vietnamese? Well, no one seemed to know. So after, and I'd had some experience in combat loading in 130s in Vietnam, so I'm trying to figure out what I'm going to do here. I estimated if we were bringing out babies, babies only, between the seats upstairs and what we had left in the cockpit area and the cargo floor, we could bring 2,000 babies out of there, strap them to the floor. <laughs> we were looking at 1,000. If we're talking about American adults, maybe 1,000, and after we went back and forth and, and I kept giving estimates. Captain Trainer made a decision that we would bring 1,200 people out. No matter what they brought out, we cut them off at 1,200. So that was the decision made that day. And had they have been ready, we would have brought 1,200 people out, I think. We had, we had a lot of room on there. And, and then, they, then they said, well, if you're going to take out all these people, what do you need to do that? Uh, <laughs> okay, well, I've got a two-year-old and a two-week-old kid. I know what kids need. And so we chatted briefly about baby bottles and pillows, and we cleaned out the BX and the commissary. And they said, oh, yeah, and we're going to alert the air vac crew. 
And I went, Arabic? <laughs> and so I said, I don't know anything about Arabic. C5s don't do Arabic. And they said, well, uh, we're, we're getting, giving you an Arabic crew. And in the meantime, <laughs> Perlani was invited in the last few moments of her alert window to come fly with us. Yes. Um, you heard what their, their story is up to this point. Um, Aravac was undergoing a lot of changes at that time, and um, there was a, an Aravac group that was assigned to Clark. They flew C-9s. I belong to the Travis active duty Aravac unit. We flew C-9s and 141s, primarily 141s. Um, so the, the folks that ended up on the mission that were from my squadron at Travis, we had deadheaded over on Sunday, had gotten in on Tuesday, and the chief nurse of the 9th, because we had to report into both squadrons, um, told us that we might have some AIRVAC missions um, that week, but she didn't know if, in fact, we would have any bringing people out of Vietnam. We would still be doing our regular uh, C-9 runs through Japan, Korea, Thailand, and all of those areas, plus the 141 nurses and techs had to pull the alert for the 141s, which covered everywhere from the North to the South Pole, from the middle of the Indian Ocean to the West Coast of the United States, so we could fly just about anywhere. As it so happened, Mary Klinker um, ended up being the 141 alert nurse on, let's see, Wednesday to Thursday, because we pulled it from 8 o'clock in the morning until 8 o'clock in the evening. I mean, till 8 o'clock one morning until 8 o'clock the next morning. I ended up being the alert nurse on Thursday, so when I got the call, you got the call earlier than we did, but when I got the call, it was 6 o'clock in the morning, so I was two hours from coming off alert. Um, when bad our timing. Bad timing, <laughs> was right. I was actually supposed to fly to Japan on Saturday, but um, our scheduler called, and, he, and I, when the phone rang, I figured, oh, it's on alert, because that's what you'd expect at that hour of the morning when you were on alert. Anyway, um, I answered the phone, and our scheduler said it was an alert, but then he said, everybody's being alerted in both the 9th and the 10th. Well, Chambers Hall was the uh, BOQ that we lived in when we were staying over there at Clark, and um, the scheduler said to me, go wake everybody up, tell them the crew bus is on its way. So we had about 15 minutes to get ready with all our flying gear, go to the squadron. And so we got to the squadron, and um, as in all, all these kinds of situations, there was a lot of confusion. And originally it was thought, because it was an AIRVAC mission, we're going to take one of the planes that you use for AIRVAC, which for the 9th was the C-9. So they originally picked a crew of C-9 nurses and med techs from the 9th at Clark. Well, then uh, a little while later, <clears throat> the chief nurse came back and said, Oh no, we're taking a C-5. Well, we've never flown a C-5 in AIRVAC. Air, you know, a C-5 had never been used for AIRVAC. It so was then, my first and last AIRVAC. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, when I went out to the plane, to get a little ahead of the story, I introduced myself, because there's a certain briefing the aircraft commander gives to the med crew, and there's a certain briefing the medical crew director gives to the flight crew on AIRVAC missions. And when I introduced myself and said I introduced my, my crew, my other nurse and my three med techs, he said, well, 
Hi, I'm Bud Trainer, and I've never flown an AIRVAC mission in my life. So tell me what I have to do. I don't know if you remember saying that to me. I probably did. <laughs> but anyway, we didn't know what we were going to be taking out of uh, Saigon. We didn't know for sure that it was all infants or children. So we gathered up our Medgear kits, which at that time we carried in these big blue metal boxes, really, and drug those out with us to the aircraft. And then um, I do remember saying to you, we've never flown aerovac missions on a C-5, so please have some of your crew members while we're flying over there kind of give us a little walk around of the aircraft, which is indeed what they did. I don't remember who did it now, which members of the crew did it, but we actually spent most of the mission going over learning the aircraft. Now we had checklists for 141s and C9s and C130s, but we didn't have a checklist for a C5. So that's what we spent our time doing on the way over was learning the aircraft and asking in particular to tell us what the emergency equipment was, what kinds of emergency equipment were available on the aircraft and how um, anything worked and where there might be first aid kits and those kinds of things that obviously an aerobat crew would be interested in knowing. <laughs> That's right. So among us though we, uh, we began to realize that uh, unlike the normal situation where we were just doing our job, we were actually creating the rules to do our job. And so uh, she's being modest, but she created an entire system to take care of whatever contingency came up on the C-5. Uh, the, the, I know the things they were asking me had nothing to do with flying airplanes, and, and, but between us we figured that, yes, if we were going to do a humanitarian airlift of some sort, we would be able to do this, and here's what you ought to do. And between us, we came up with, I think, 500, like I say, 500 milks, 500 juices, all the blankets, all the pampers, all the diapers, all the everything that we could uh, put our hands on. And, uh, and then we uh, ran out to the airplane, jumped on, got ready to go, and they said, wait, they've changed their mind. So we sat there and sat there and sat there, and we finally got off the airplane and went back into the, to the, uh, the command post area and just about reached the door, and they came running back out and said, go, 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 you're, you're cleared to launch. So off we went. So far, everything's just fine. Uh, in, in route, I became instantly popular, with, particularly with, I'm sure, Sergeant Snedeker, who wouldn't admit it at the time, but uh, I made him take all the crew bags from downstairs and put them upstairs, and because we have some bunk areas upstairs, and I thought, well, we just don't need anybody. Uh, so there's a lot of grousing as they had to carry everybody's bags up these little rickety stairs up to, up into the crew area. But we did that, and then we, uh, we landed, and it was a normal, as far as I could tell, a normal. Uh, day in, at Tonsonut Air Base there in Saigon and I went inside to go file the flight plan to go back home and uh, Ray started the offload. Why don't you give him a little touch on what was going on out there. Okay, basically there was chaos all over the ramp, but we, we had 17105 howitzers on the airplane. Uh, routinely open the rear doors uh, electrically, nothing wrong with that get the 17105 howitzers out there. Now we're starting to have people congregate 
trying to tell us what we're going to put on the airplane in addition to hundreds of media that's out there to film this first time, one time event, I guess. Um, lots of chaos on what we're going to do as far as manifest, uh, boxes we're going to load, who we're going to put on, etc. cetera. Uh, we spread the blankets on the floor, uh, got the straps ready to, to uh, put across the people as we tied them into the floor because we're beginning to find out we had some adults. We had a, we had a lot of babies, uh, Vietnamese babies to put on there, and we had uh, some U.S. Uh, DAO personnel, wives that they were uh, getting out of the country as fast as they could, some escorts for the babies, part of this big brother, big sister program. So I knew I had to put a lot of people in the floor. I didn't know how many I was going to have yet, so we put, spread the blankets on the floor, uh, got the straps ready to hook up, decided how we're going to hook them along the side, and as he talked earlier on the babies, you'll see some pictures here momentarily, uh, putting them back in the troop compartment. we got 73 seats back there for passengers. We have two seats for the loadmasters, so we got 75 seats to put people in. I do know how many babies I had in the troop compartment. I had 145 children and 75 seats. That's the only number I can tell you exactly what I had on board that day. Uh, adults, I don't know how many I had in the troop compartment. I don't know how many adults and or kids I had in the, in the cargo compartment exactly. I have a good number. My number differs from the official count by about 15, so no one knows the exact count. But anyway, we got it set up to do that and, and put blankets upstairs and pillows upstairs to, to for the babies that we were going to load into those compartments and uh, basically did what we could. And I'm not sure what, where the cutoff came and when we were going to cut off taking people on, but I think they ran out of people to bring to us. Fortunately, we did not have 1,200 people that day. What had happened was that, that uh, by the time I had filed and came back out to the airplane again, expecting just to load some folks on and leave, you know, standard stuff. And, uh, and there was a lot of chaos, and, the, and the, the orphanages apparently weren't ready for us. Well, it was more than that, as I found out in later years. They, they had Pan Am flights, and they were just going to wait till tomorrow. And so they didn't bring some of the kids to us and for that reason. And also, the local ambassador, uh, Ambassador Graham Martin, he was concerned that any evacuation would send panic through the streets of Saigon. And, probably would have and should have, I suppose. But, uh, but he saw this as an ideal opportunity to get some of his employees out uh, under the cover or under the guise of taking care of orphans. And so they scrounded, uh, rounded up uh, uh, some orphans and uh, some uh, other people who were trying to get out of the country. And uh, we loaded them all on. And as, as Ray said, we had a lot of press out there. Uh, I've never seen any of the pictures that, that the press, I'd like to find them, that the press has uh, in their archives because we let them come through the cargo compartment, uh, put a crew member with each uh, person from the media, and they, were, they filmed the inside of the cargo compartment. And we went in one end door and one out the other. And we had, as Ray said, we had 40 USDAO sponsors uh, and children. This is the way upstairs that we took care of most of the kids. Now, what we did was we took their, the ones that were young enough not to undo their seatbelt. If they could undo the seatbelt, they went downstairs and somebody else came up. I also have to say that the people upstairs are the ones that survived, and the people downstairs basically did not. 
So these are the lucky ones, and so the kids that survived, none of them have any recollection of the C-5 trip home because they are all too young. And there are 145 children in those 75 seats there. So we, we'd go kid, kid, juice, milk, seat belt, blanket, and uh, there are interesting anecdotes uh, with that. Uh, several, there were several adults upstairs, but none of them had seats, so they were all sitting braced in the uh, between the seats. And later, that would prove to be fatal for those people who got up. Uh, we had two impacts, first and second impact, and the people who got up, a couple of them in the middle of the of our uh, skidding across the ground, going airborne and landing again, uh, they they were uh, injured and subsequently died. The people basically upstairs, though, survived, and the people basically downstairs did not. Uh, I'm going to play for you next a video that I stole from uh, History Channel. I, I actually have bought a copy of it, but it's very interesting. Some of the stuff applies to us, and some of the stuff does not. Uh, but it, it shows our actual airplane. And so let me... The North Vietnamese Army began to close in on Saigon. Fortunately, as the U.S. 7th Fleet arrived off the coast for the final evacuation of South Vietnam, a team of veteran Air America pilots were still in the country. We're working out of Saigon. Uh, we still ran our operations for whatever the customer, the customer required of us. Uh, it wasn't until, uh, I would say, maybe a week or two before the evacuation began that we realized that we're getting near the end. That's the of the operation. When Air America closed down its operations in Laos, that just went to work for the defense had a Shea office in Saigon. During the chaos and confusion of those final days, orphans of all ages were busted at the Saigon airport and loaded onto large transports for evacuation. As Jess assisted in the loading of one that of these planes, nice. his leg was broken in the crush of South Vietnamese civilians and soldiers fighting to get on board. Tragically, the huge plane crashed on takeoff, That's killing most of the orphans and escort crewmen. Jess continued working in evacuation operations in Saigon as the situation rapidly deteriorated. The shock to all of us in the States was that okay, after I the peace settlement and the withdrawal... Thank you very much. So that's, the, that's the only pictures I have of the C-5 actually there in Saigon at that time. We ended up... Uh, pretty much getting everybody put on the airplane and and uh, did you have any other observations on the ground no um, because the children were so small we had to hand them hand over hand really to get them upstairs um, at the very last minute we added another medical crew on board so in addition to the few adults that were upstairs with the children there was an entire med crew up there because what I had done originally was split my med crew and when um, we added the additional med crew. I split it again so that we'd have a whole med crew upstairs, which includes a whole med crew is two nurses and three medical technicians, and then a whole med crew downstairs. And I was originally downstairs, so once everybody was loaded upstairs, I had elected to stay downstairs um, and was actually in the cargo compartment when we took off. Um, and then um, as we were climbing out, a lady who was accompanying the children, and I don't know who she was, but she got very ill on takeoff. 
And so the med crew members that were downstairs started taking care of her. Well, we'd, Ray and I had had this discussion about where we were going to put the med kits and where we were going to put the medicines. And since we carried narcotics in our medicine kits, I had opted to put the med kits upstairs. Well, when I needed to go get medication for this lady that got sick, I went upstairs. And so that's how I ended up upstairs. But I was originally not upstairs. And everything seemed fine upstairs in terms of the fact that the, the children were all strapped into the seats. And with the med crew that was there and the few adults that were there, everything was pretty calm upstairs um, during the beginning of the flight. We took off. Uh, we closed the doors, uh, got them closed. Uh, all the indications were that everything was absolutely normal. Uh, we took off. Uh, I remember complimenting the crew on an outstanding job in, in organizing the, the evacuation of these people and through the chaos. Uh, and we were uh, then free to talk about other things. And I know that Sergeant Snedeker started quizzing me on altitude restrictions for passengers, and, and everybody was speculating. And we were, you know, I went back afterwards and was very glad that I'd made all those answers correct because it ended up on the, the voice recorder tape. And of course, everybody's looking at that very carefully to make sure that we, we were, were discussing things correctly. This is a picture of the Mekong Delta. That's what it looks like. Uh, it is as featureless sometimes from the air as it, it appears here. So that's what it looked like on the, on the climb out uh, going across the, the, the Mekong Delta. So that picture would have been about here. Uh, we went out about, at that point, 12 in, about 12 minutes out. Uh, there's 93 tons of pressure on the rear door. Uh, we're just chatting, and the next thing we know, that door blows out, the back door. Uh, it's a classic rapid decompression, just like we'd all trained in the, the simulator in the altitude chamber. And uh, the cockpit filled with fog. Uh, my rudder pedals jammed back and forth. And uh, so within this fog, I'm saying, oh, my god, the co-pilot's window is going to be in his lap, because remember, I thought it, the one-hour seal wasn't good enough for this window. So I looked over at the co-pilot, and he's putting on his oxygen mask, and I said, that's probably a good idea, too. <clears throat> so I put on my, put, put on my uh, oxygen mask, and just as I did that, the uh, troop compartment checked in just like they're supposed to. Everybody absolutely calm, cool, cool and collected. Sergeant Snedeker runs up to me, and uh, I send him downstairs to go see what happened because nobody seems to know. The troop compartment just tells me that everything's okay, but there's nothing. The tail is missing and you know, there's nothing down below. So let me give you a picture of the door here. And Ray, if you wouldn't mind running them through a little bit of the locks and okay. stuff. On the C-5, there are uh, two bell cranks on each side. There's seven locks, three here, four back here. Eight, and there's a bell crank that controls the first three locks, a bell crank that controls the last four locks. When this door was rigged at uh, Travis, when, when they had taken a uh, bell crank off of the air, this airplane, went to airplane B, let's call it, took a bell crank on it, uh, put off of it to put back on this airplane again, which came back to A. We found out you can't cannibalize these parts on a C-5. We didn't know that at the time. Anyway, when they 
put it back together. They did not re-rig the door. They were directed to go ahead and sign it off. They ran it through six times manually, and we know now they probably cracked that bell crank because it was a little bit too small. Anytime there's more than one lock in sequence unlocked on this thing and you're under pressure, if you reach enough pressure, something's got to give. What happened was the bell crank on these first three locks broke, released three locks. Now we have four locks on the right-hand side holding this door and seven locks on the left-hand side, which was our downfall because it held it momentarily long enough at 23,400 feet when it, when it broke. It let the pressure door come down, which you'll explain, go back up and cut the control cables. But that's essentially what happened to it. These first three locks released. Those four held. These seven held. Uh, and to back up a little bit to show you the day in the life of a normal loadmaster's job, uh, I had made the takeoff, as, as uh, Colonel Lawney talks about in the cargo compartment too, same way I did in 130, standing in the left troop door. We were down there with all these people. She's down there. One of the decisions that were made earlier in the day that she just mentioned was the fact that what are we going to do with this, these narcotics. She had elected to take them upstairs to the troop compartment, which that's why she's here today. Had she have stayed downstairs, she would not be here probably. She made a decision to go get the narcotics or whatever drugs she needed for this lady that was, was having the situation in the cargo compartment. It was what put her upstairs to the area that was safe. When I go forward and after the rapid decompression, Colonel Trainer sends me to the cargo compartment to assess what's going on. Now, the story he got from the troop compartment, everything's under control, was certainly not the story in the cargo compartment with all these people strapped to the floor and these babies and things down there and the back end's gone out of the airplane. And, and I'll always remember... When I started to go down the ladder out of the cockpit and I looked to the back, the first thing that popped in my mind was spaghetti because all I could see was control cables dangling out the back of the airplane. The doors are gone, the ramp is gone, and there's hydraulic fluid pumping. So I have this thought in my head of spaghetti for some reason, all this red hydraulic fluid pumping. This time we're going down in the left wing. I'm trying to crawl through people over top of people to get to the back of the airplane to see what I can see. The thing that sticks in my mind, this ramp ripped off, when these came off, ripped off right, here's the winch well, it ripped off all the way across here. Oops. All of that back, this is gone, these doors are dangling back here, and this the pressure door is gone, and this ramp is gone. We had tied down bags on this ramp right here and put a tie-down strap from a ring here to here. The thing that sticks in my mind is the ramp's gone across here, but these bags that are sitting here are still sitting there. They haven't moved. The back of the ramp is gone. There's nothing holding those bags that are sitting there in place. They haven't moved left, right, or anything. They're still sitting there. I don't understand it. At this point, I'm decided I'm going to go back up. There's people crying to me that their babies are missing, and I can see straps flapping with nothing under them, so I'm assuming that a baby had been sucked out. We have a flight engineer who left the airplane at the rapid decompression in the same area that these straps were at. So we think a vortex came in, came around, broke this off, came around into the center of the airplane and possibly pulled him out, plus others possibly. Okay. Well, there's an inter interphone uh, panel right in this corner, and that's where the guy was standing when, or the engineer was standing when the, we had the rapid decompression. But I, at that point, I do not know the flight engineer's gone, I, and I don't know we, anyone has gone out of the airplane other than I can see some empty spots where somebody had been. Uh, I survey the situation, go back upstairs and tell him, uh, try to tell him what's going on. Everybody's in a panic in the cargo compartment as far as the passengers because they can see out of the airplane, they can see the ocean, uh, something that she's been looking at uh, from the troop compartment. <laughs> uh, 
And I'm trying to reassure them, thinking we're going back to Saigon. I'm not on headset. I'm trying to reassure them everything's okay, and they're saying do not take us back to Saigon. We do not want to go back there. Uh, unbeknownst to me, we were already making plans to go back there. The other thing I remember from the cargo compartment is I was trying to figure out why they were flying the airplane. Once they regained control of the airplane, we were power on, power off. And I'm thinking, what's going on with this? And unknown to me, they were controlling the airplane through power alone and I guess an ailerons, but uh, a rudder. And, and, uh, but anyway, I, I couldn't figure it out. We were oscillating, I guess, as much as four to 5,000 feet. Well, I even, didn't realize it. Even more than that, actually, because see, what had happened was the, the uh, we're at 273 knots and, and that's what the airplane is trimmed for. And suddenly we have in the back of the airplane a place where all the flight control cables and all four hydraulic systems meet. And that door, when it left, left, twisted just enough to slice through them. And they cut the cables and they cut two of the four hydraulic systems. If they had cut all four, we wouldn't be talking today. But the, the, the two that we had left allowed us to at least keep pressure on the controls that were there, although I couldn't change them. And I also had basically right aileron and left spoiler. That's all I had. That's the hydraulic diagram. And what I'm talking about, you can see, those are the pilot control cables. And here are all the hydraulic lines coming in. And the co-pilot's control cables are on the other side. So when that big door with its 93 tons of pressure left, it also left me with only roll control and power. So what's at an altitude, what's the procedure for going down? You roll off on a wing and uh, turn around, nose low, and head for 10,000 feet because that's the the standard altitude so that you can fly forever at 10,000 without oxygen problems. Well, we got to 10,000 and we got faster and faster and faster and pretty soon we start going up. And whoa, now we're going, now we're going straight up. And it's a fugoid oscillation because we, we had gotten very fast. Uh, I did a vertical recovery just like I had done in a fighter a trainer earlier and we've it works just fine in a C5 to do the, the a wing over, and, but this time I had the nose really low. Now, I still hadn't figured out that, that I didn't have any yoke control because one of the remaining hydraulic systems fed the artificial feel, which was told how hard to make the stick move by how fast we're going, and so it's really hard, but no wires are connected and so nothing's happening. Uh, and this time we see all the tapes go by, the, the, we go by the red lines, and I don't really know how fast we did get going, but as I said, we hold the, the uh, speed record in the C5. Uh, this but it looked as though I was going to uh, hit Vong Tao and before I would dish back out again and start going back up. So the, I think the, the miracle was... Uh, thinking back to some of the things that my father had taught me back. Uh, he was an old barnstormer. And so uh, I added power in the dive. I was already going faster than anybody had ever gone in a C5, and I added full power in the dive. But what that did was that made me rotate faster and go faster sooner. Uh, and this time, as I was starting to scream back up, I didn't wait till I was in a vertical configuration. And... I rolled off on a wing again and stopped myself at 10,000 feet and leveled back at 10,000 and went, wow. And 
during this time, because there's no windows downstairs, the folks are saying, yeah, let's, let's go on to the Philippines. We, we're not going back to Saigon. There's nothing wrong. This was all a 1G maneuver. I couldn't do anything other than 1G. So it was, a, it was quite a, uh, an exciting time. Now this troop ladder is the ladder that we had to carry the kids up. And it's the ladder that when the door went, there was a, uh, one of the loadmasters standing on it, and he just was reaching over the top of the bar to go through and uh, he injured both of his knees when the door went and the guys upstairs pulled this big huge guy through this little tiny rail and uh, it was just amazing that they pulled him in and uh, assessed the situation from there. But uh, there was an Avis crew filming during the rapid decompression. Uh, we had taken them on board uh, and unfortunately they didn't make it. The film uh, was stripped out of the cameras. They got the cameras back, not the film. Uh, you know, it was just very sad that they didn't get that kind of stuff. Um, so we are head back to to Saigon, and uh, once again, uh, we up front have finally figured out that we are at least not going up or down too fast. For our, uh, we we had some modicum of control, and that's why we had all this power surge going right. back and forth. Uh, I thought we just had bad, bad pilots. I didn't know. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Probably not enough hydraulic fluid in the coffee that morning. We, uh, uh, we were heading back, and we had to emergency extend the gear. And uh, when we did so, it took a little bit more power. And uh, as you can imagine, I came in. You can see the angle at which I was coming into the runway. This is standard. You can see the, the direction of the runway, and we were trying to come back and land opposite direction traffic. And my intention was to make about a 45-degree turn like you would do normally to uh, a final and, and just touch down and land. Now, maybe it wouldn't have been a good idea because at the speed we are going, we were probably been on the runway for about 30 seconds in downtown Saigon. So, but as it turns out, we couldn't bank the airplane with all the extra drag. So uh, what, we, what we did coming into Saigon is right there where it says first impact. Uh, we were trying to make the turn, couldn't make the turn. The co-pilot said, uh, are we going to take it straight ahead? And I said, yes. He thought I meant land. And I thought, no, we'll just dish out and do this again. I mean, we're captains. We're invincible. I mean, this is, this is all uh, preordained that everything's going to work out. So, but as we're getting closer and closer to the ground, my maximum power isn't doing enough. So I just pushed the throttles over the top. And now when you do that, you're just dumping raw fuel into the jets. And we were torching monstrous amounts of fire out the back into the airplane, and so everybody on the ground said, oh my gosh, they've taken a missile, they've been shot, something's wrong in that way, so that we had to fight a long time afterward to say no, that we didn't take ground fire, or we weren't on fire, no, nothing like that. Uh, but I got down within about 200 feet, uh, pulled the throttles to idle, and decided we didn't go, need to go in like an arrow, and we leveled out. And lo and behold, we touched down very lightly and skipped back into the air. 
Well, why? I had briefed the co-pilot that when we got on the runway at Tonsonut, we'd go full spoilers and full flaps. So when we touched down, he dutifully put down full flaps. So what happened to us? We popped right back up in the air again. Didn't have a clue. May, you know, what, what did that do? Did that save us? Maybe it did. I don't know. But it, it took me, it was several years later, I figured out that's why we went back up in the air again. Uh, people adjusted. On the first impact, we had a, a uh, loadmaster stand up. Tell them about that part. Oh, Bill Parker was the gentleman that pulled Sergeant Perkins through that gate on the C-5 upstairs. Sergeant Perkins will not fit through that gate. He's too big. Bill Parker weighed about half as much as Perkins did. He jerked him into the, into the troop compartment and saved his life with both, both legs. Well, on the first impact, there had been an incident about two months prior to that that I was also involved in at Travis, and uh, where the, we couldn't get the slides out of the aircraft because we had a, a power transfer unit fire on the aircraft, and we were trying to evacuate people out of the troop compartment. Couldn't get them out. We couldn't get the slides to open. We found out that they were safety tied too strong a cord, so they modified those. Well, lo and behold, on the first impact in Saigon, the slides in the troop compartment inflated. They opened up in the park. Parker got up. We know he got up to start puncturing those. And on the second impact, Sergeant Parker went from the rear of the troop compartment all the way through up and hit the frames while Panley's head went through it and uh, caused uh, serious injury, which he died from 17 days later. But he stood up thinking we were down and he was trying to save from suffocating some kids in, in, the, uh, in the troop compartment. So... Our first touchdown, you can see where the gear hit. You can also see, if you look carefully, where the four engines also scooped up just a little bit of the dirt. And we went airborne again. We chopped off, the wing chopped off these trees, which I'll show you a picture of in a little bit. We went across the river, and the smoke you see is the burning wings of, of our aircraft. And what I'd like to do now is to run a video. Now, the accident board, after this was all over, uh, they, or while it was in progress, really, they, they had a helicopter fly this route, and I want to show you that, that tape. This is the terrain. These are the fallow rice dikes. When you talk about where rice is grown, those are the things. And you can see up here is where we're about to touch down. It's in here that I think I'm not going to touch down. I was wrong. What time of day was it? Four in the afternoon. We touched down at 4.30. He checked his watch to make sure we had downtime. I, I logged it. I filled out the 781. <laughs> I took the MADAR tape with us, too, only it was the spare. These people are scavenging or looking for parts, mostly scavenging. This is Viet Cong held territory at the moment. This is in retrospect where the people said, if you're going to E&E, &E, don't go here. And what we're coming up on is the Saigon River. I tell you, Hollywood came to mind when I was doing this too because I said, all right, if you know, John Wayne can do it, I can do it. When 
going to cross the river, and we're going to touch down right here. We drug our tail in the water, landed on a, a half a dozen or so Vietnamese soldiers that just didn't expect to see a C-5 coming at five feet. <laughs> I don't know why. This is, this is all that remains of the cargo compartment. It's all abraded away. I've got some stills I'll show you in a minute. This is the tail. This is the troop compartment where all those kids were strapped to to a chair. That's the flight deck where Ray and I ended up. And over here is the wing burn area, very politely way away. Makes you wonder why we're here, right? We were uh, trimmed for 273 knots. Our speed had to be 273 knots almost no matter what we were doing in unaccelerated flight. So we were right there, and that's about 300 miles an hour. And so 276, 200, you know, I, I didn't look at it very carefully, but I did notice my VVI was only about 400 feet per minute rate of descent, and I thought that was pretty good. I think there's an accident report that says 279 knots at an initial touchdown. Yeah. It's... Uh, it's going to be very close to the same speed that we've been flying the entire time, except for the little excursions when we were figuring out how to control the fugoid oscillation. So there are those trees we chopped off. And right down at the base of that tree, that's one of the main trucks that didn't like hitting the rice dike a little ways back. No, because the the drag of the gear and maximum power still wouldn't give me enough to be able to do that. Now, after they did a, a study, and the C5 guys here would, would be able to tell you that there's now four or five pages in the Dash 1 dealing with this, that if you put the flaps to full right away, all together, that you'll go through an uncontrollable phase and then be able to recover. So. Uh, if I had done that or known to do that, that would be the only way that I could have slowed down and, and also had enough power to continue. This is just playing with PowerPoint. Saigon is over here. The, the, that's the, the field where we're trying to get to. You can't really see it, but it's over in this area. The flight deck, troop compartment, tail, wing burn area, and right in here is where the majority of the people who did not survive the cargo compartment ended up. Let me take you through a little, what my thought process was in this whole episode. I told you I'd made the takeoff in the, in the cargo compartment in the left troop door along with Lieutenant Ani was down there. She had gone upstairs to get the narcotics. At the same time, I went upstairs to get the, uh, uh, some water for, to bring downstairs. Uh, I was sitting up there when the, when the rapid decompression happened. I just had sat down in a seat, and as, as Colonel Trainer says, the rapid decompression is exactly like it is if you go through an altitude chamber. The thing we've practiced for uh, all our life, it, it happened exactly like that. Uh, I immediately jumped up. Uh, well, I got an oxygen mask, came out of the ceiling. Uh, none of them worked in the, in the car compartment for us, so I jumped up and grabbed the closest walk-around bottle to take care of Ray first. And I got it, and that's when I went up to the cockpit. I went downstairs. Did all the surveying, came back and forth two or three times. Prior to impact, I had had a, uh, one of the other loadmasters who lives out of California now had said, we're getting ready to crash land, I'm assuming on the runway. 
and you need to go get your crash landing checklist. And I'm a standardization guy, so boy, that makes sense to me. So I run upstairs where he had told us to put our books and grab my checklist and started thumbing through my checklist for the crash landing checklist. All at once I realized, well, you fool, there is no such <laughs> thing. No crash landing checklist. <laughs> so I threw my checklist back into the floor and walked out of the bunk room to go back downstairs. I'm thinking, now we get on the runway and we, we've crashed. I'm going to need to help get these people out downstairs. We don't have any slides for them, etc. I'm going to help downstairs. I start to go down the ladder. As I start to go down, a flight engineer by the name of McAtee is sitting back in the relief crew compartment, and he starts yelling and screaming at me to get my butt in the seat that, you know, we're getting ready to crash. And at that point, I'm thinking, you know, I'm working my butt off. He's sitting there resting. I'm, I'm not sure I like this comment. So I elected to go down the stairs again. When I did, the flight engineer sitting at the panel grabbed me in my flight suit, jerks me back onto the flight deck. At that time, the engineer who's yelling at me starts on me again. So I'm thinking, well, he's a master sergeant, I'm a senior, I'm gonna go back there and take care of this right now. I go back to seam, and just as I arrive at the air relief crew area, those of you fly C5s will understand this, there's a relief crew, there's a table there that the load masters work out of. Just when I got to that, he's sitting down on the left, right left hand side walking out he reaches out grabs me by my elbow picks me up slams me into a seat at the table i'm the only one there at the at the, about the time i hit the seat i can hear the ground coming up it's screaming at me we're going so fast and we're going into the ground so quickly that i realize we're real close so i reach for a seat belt and any of you even got on an airline will know you can't find your seat belt it's never right i found it exactly snapped it snapped it exactly about the time we impacted it's out to here so I'm floating in it. On the impact, the first one he's talking about was, it's a little harder than a, than a smooth landing he talked about, but it, it was, I've had landings like that before. <laughs> Not flying with me. Not flying with him. <laughs> and, and on that impact, everything's in real time, the lights are on, and I'm real happy because, boy, we're on the ground. I'm happy now. Then I realized we're getting airborne again. Now that's when we're climbing back through these trees. We're pulling, taking these trees out. Well, I look out the window, I'm not on headset, I don't know what's going on, and I see water below me, and I thought, oh, he just landed short. You know, he's just getting us back up over this water. I don't know, we're crossing a river at that point. And then he's gonna set it back down. Well, I look out, and those of you who heard stories about the C5 and the bad wing on it, well, I saw that left wing, the tip of it go out of sight going down, and I saw it go out of sight going back up. So I know there's a lot of flex in that wing. It's still on the airplane at this point. We're jumping the river. We hit the second time, it's solid, it's real solid. At that point, the lights go out in the airplane. The airplane starts coming apart on me, it's flying by me. I'm sitting at the, this table, I've got my arms braced under it, I got my feet braced on a seat on the other side. Now keep in mind, I'm the standards guy. I'm the guy that knows it all, I'm checking everybody else. The only thought racing through my mind, when they get to this crash site, I'm in serious trouble. I'm supposed to remove this table and stow it, and I'm supposed to turn those seats around that I'm bracing on, turn them in the other direction. I'm in real serious trouble when they get to this crash site, being the standards guy. Anyway, I kept riding it out. Shortly thereafter, as the debris starts passing me, and I think the airplane's all in one piece, I know now the tail's gone. It's the troop compartment's broken off with her, it's gone. I'm riding the cockpit, the bottom is shredding away. I think it's all in one piece. I feel the airplane coming up, turning to my left, I'm facing aft, and the tail going up, and in my mind, the whole airplane's together. All at once, I don't know if you've been in a near car crash or something, how everything slows down and you go into slow motion, 
This airplane went into real slow motion. Lights are out, debris is banging on the table, and I'm in slow motion going up and back. I uh, kept thinking, if this thing will just hurry up, I'm, I'm okay, I'm alive, I'm, I'm still here. If it would just hurry up, you know, if it would stop, and then I got to thinking, if it would speed up, I'd be alive too, but it never did. It stayed in slow motion for an eternity for me. And I finally realized I was upside down and sliding. And again, I have visions of the airplanes all in one piece. I don't know. I'm in a small part of it. And when the airplane stops, there's total silence. I can't hear anything. I'm listening. I'm hanging upside down, and I'm listening for a fire, and I'm smelling for a fire. I don't hear any of that. So I think, okay, I know where I'm at. I released my seatbelt, fell about four feet to the ceiling, which was the floor now. And, uh, and then I, now I have a concussion in addition to shock. And then I stand up, and I'm totally lost in this airplane. I, I'm, I'm facing in the wrong direction. I'm standing on the ceiling, and I don't know where I'm at at this particular point, other than the fact I'm going to escape. I run in a direction I thought would take me out, and it turned out I was running toward the cockpit where these guys were sitting. The ladder that I was going to go down came up, blocked the entranceway, and as the galley and the water jugs and all of this was passing me at this table, it's going up there and building up a, a blockage area, and the ladder kept it from getting into the cockpit to these guys. I think I'm, I, I'm going anyway. I turn around and run the other way and run out the back, and when I do, I see the fire we're talking about, which was the wings. At that point, I'm thinking the whole crew is dead up front. You know, they're all, they're gone. Now, I can see the troop compartment, and I, and I go over there, and there's other stories leading up to it. I just want to give you a perspective of, of what it seemed like to me in slow motion for ever. It was same, kind of the same thing with me. And, and then let's get yours too in a minute, Regina. About in this point, the airplane, from my perspective, is still all with me. I have no concept that anything has fallen off. And I've got all my gauges, the engines are humming along, and the next thing I know, it's, it lurches forward and the, the, all the tapes drop. So I've lost power, and I still don't have a concept that, that what has happened is the, the flight deck is broken right behind its neck, and now we're going independent of the rest of the airplane. Tail has already dropped off. The cargo compartment, it is, it's abrading in this area tail drops off, well, with, without all that extra baggage, Lieutenant Ani and her bunch go airborne again with the, just the wings and the troop compartment. The wings decide to break loose from that, nicely deposit, well, I don't know from your perspective, but nicely deposit the, like a toboggan, the troop compartment, and the wings continue to fly themselves another few hundred yards and crash and burn. That's where all the, the burning was. As I'm skipping through the, the wilderness there, I don't have any idea what's happening, but I do realize that we were turning inverted, as Ray said. And as I do that, now all I can think of is these rice dikes. I'm going to go right over one of these rice dikes and be decapitated. And I remember thinking about my childhood and a uh, Stone Mountain, Georgia, a scenic cruiser bus had gone und under an overpass and sliced off the top of it. And I said, that's what's going to happen to me. So that's when I said goodbye to my wife, and all of a sudden, dead quiet, like you say. Whoa, I'm here. I'm still alive. And Well, needless to say, it was a little bit different in the troop car compartment. And obviously, the med crew was focused in a whole different direction in terms of what we were doing, um, because we had all these children to take care of. 
Once the ladder was torn out in the back, we had no way of getting out of the troop compartment. So we had to assume that everything was being taken care of in the other parts of the aircraft because there was no way we could go down and see what was happening in the, in the cargo compartment. Um, Ray's already told you about the escape slides inflating, but what we did at the time right after the RD, and I had been kneeling on the grate in the back, so when I looked down, I could see the spaghetti in the back and the fact that the back of the aircraft was gone. But some of the other folks further forward in the troop compartment didn't know that because they were up there with staying with the children. And I certainly, and none of us in the troop compartment even were aware of the movement of the aircraft as much as it was moving. Because when Bud told me about it, I thought, I don't remember that at all. But I was so busy because we had to go and we went and restrapped all the children and we checked all the children after the, the RD and making sure everybody was secured. And then the med crew that was upstairs talked about how we were going to get out of the plane because we pretty much knew we were going to have a crash landing. And as I said, we had no checklist, so we were looking around to see if we could remember where everything was up there because there were some first aid kits and, and other things up there that we could use. So we were looking to gather that up to make sure we knew where all of that was so that we have it available when we finally um, were able to get out of the aircraft. Um, I had no seat because I really was supposed to be downstairs. So once we got done doing all that, which took us a little while, and discussed how we were going to egress the aircraft once we came to a stop and what we were going to do with the children, um, because again, they're all going to have to be carried wherever we took them. Um, we got into uh, a brace position, if you will. Everybody got in a position where we could you know, protect ourselves as much as possible. Of course, we didn't have any windows, so we couldn't see anything. So, and, and we didn't really have a way of knowing what was going on um, in the way that Ray and, and Bud knew what was going on. So we were kind of in the dark, literally, and figuratively both in terms of, okay, we're going to do what we know we can do at this point because there's nothing else we can do um, and hope that the flight crew was managing to take care of the emergency as best they could. I was back. Such trust. <laughs> well, th that's true, but um, that's a good point. Doctors and airline pilots, right? <laughs> <laughs> that's a good point. You know, the med crew had never flown together as a med crew. The 10 of us had never flown together as a med crew, and we certainly hadn't flown with any of the C-5 crew because we didn't fly C-5s. So we had literally just met each other that day, and what we had to rely on was our training, um, our understanding of, of how to do emergency procedures in an aircraft, and truly trust, mm -hmm. and, and, and we did. I mean, we trusted each other. Um, we'd worked really hard, flight crew and mid crew, when we were in planning and trying to figure out how we were gonna carry off this massive mission, never dreaming in our wildest dreams that we were gonna have a major tragedy in the process of doing it. But I wouldn't have went. <laughs> yeah, right. we could have stayed home. That's right. Well, one of, our, one of our team came to me afterward and said that he thought that we'd just run off the runway and had gone back on, and now we'd come to a rest on the runway, and he decided it was time to throw the hatch out, and when he did, there was grass growing up above the, the hatch, and he, you know, usually it's 33 feet in the air, three stories, and so he had no, absolutely no, no concept. And so we, you know, we went from there. So I, I presume that you 
didn't have any notion that we had really broken apart and that you were just one little piece. No. The only, the only thing that we knew, because we could see from that grate in the back, we knew that the back end of the aircraft was torn off because we could see that. But that was the only thing we knew. We didn't know, we didn't yeah. know what else was going on. And <laughs> so, you know, when we hit the first time up in the troop compartment, it just felt like a rough landing. You know, it didn't feel it. It didn't because we didn't we didn't get the full impact right. of the first touchdown, if you will. We didn't get that full sensation up there. So I've had worse landings on regular runways mm -hmm. than we felt with the first impact. Yeah. Then we could feel us go airborne, and the second impact we felt much much more. And that was when I ended up sliding all the way down the aisle from the aft portion of the troop compartment straight into the wall at the other end. That went sailing down the aisle so. and broke her leg and collarbone and ankle and, and a few other things so uh, we're very happy that she came through that as well as she did this is the uh, cargo compartment uh, people are these are current airplanes looking through the wreckage sifting for uh, possible survivors and taking away the the bodies That's the biggest piece of the cargo floor. You back up just a moment. This is what we were waiting around in, trying to rescue people. Sometimes you were on solid ground, and you could walk good. Other times you were up to your armpits, holding your arms out to keep them going under in this marsh, and trying to carry people out of there at the same time, if we could find anybody alive. Again. Most of those people are scavenging. They're using their, well, that one's not. That's an accident board guy. But. Remember, those people were strapped to that floor with tie-down straps. And it collapsed like a slinky, you might imagine, and it just abraded. Once, once the integrity of the airplane was gone, there wasn't anything to keep the cargo compartment container anymore now that's my window after I came to a stop uh, contrary to what Ray remembers I remember somebody in the back and it was probably Ray yelled fire because they were looking back out and it could have been after Ray ran out the back because it was took me a second to realize that hey I'm still alive uh, undid my lap belt I at least had the yoke to hang on to so I spun around the yoke reached in the wrong place for the window crank because I'm upside down now I have to get in the other area cranked it out stepped out reached back in got my hat put it on I am in the military <laughs> he was the navigator's hat mine was in my pocket I looked back and I saw the fire and the fire uh, as Ray thought uh, I thought that was the rest of the airplane and everybody's gone so even at that point uh, now the rest of the crew is following out from the flight deck and and so we all come out one after the other and I, I helped them get out my window and once we had the engineer and the navigator and the co-pilot out of the airplane then I walked around to the other side of the flight deck now Ray has already walked out the back and over this direction I'll show you another picture so this is where he came out and went over to where Colonel Ani was. Once again, my window, his exit, 
Taj Mahal where Colonel Ani was. And the reason, I don't know, I don't know that I actually saw that originally, but when I got out of the airplane, I could hear babies crying, and I'm looking for them, and, and they're crying in this troop compartment over here where she's working to get them out. This is the underside of the flight deck, and so when Sergeant Snedeker walked around to this side, he found one of the two adults that survived the cargo compartment. Go ahead and tell them about that. He was a, a medical technician by the name of Phil Wise. He was a black guy. Uh, I had seen him earlier working on one of the other medics who had been injured uh, in the rapid decompression when w the door from upstairs had come down, swirled through the air, cut the front of his face off, and Mary Clinker, she was talking about, and Phil and another gentleman were working on him. So I remembered him from that. I knew who he was. When I got out of the airplane, I saw this person laying up in this area. So I go up there, I crawl up in there to, to, to see what it is. It turns out to be Phil Wise. Now, I think with the, 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 the mud and the muck and hydraulic fluid and everything on him, he was almost chalky looking. There was some kind of a film on him. But I remember the front of his head is, is cut open and he's got a flap of skin hanging down. When I lift that skin, he's bleeding very bad. When I lift that skin up, one of his eyes is underneath that flap is bulging out of his head. So being in a state of shock and not knowing any better, I thought the best thing to do was put that eye back in. I can remember with the heel of my hand pushing his eye back into the socket. And when I let go of it, the flap of skin fell down. I left him actually laying there uh, thinking he was going to die. I, I knew he was not going to make it. And I left him to move on to do other things. And then Colonel... When uh, I walked around, he had just left him uh, and... About that time, he gets up, hands and knees, and he starts crawling into the water. Uh, right away, I figured that's not a good idea. This is tidal, and it was a little bit deeper than this you see in this picture. So I took him and leaned him up against this piece of the wreckage. And the big flap of skin that he was talking about, I told Phil, all right, take, I put it up, held it up, told Phil to put his hand up against the, the flap of skin and hold it there. I found out later his arm was broken in about three different places. So it was, but you know, he did that, and I asked him if he was cold. Uh, would you like a blanket? Because I'd seen a blanket over here, right there where I'd been walking up. There were there were several uh, children that did not make it in the cargo area, and I was taking them down. And so when I went over to get the blanket, I took the blanket away, and I saw a woman underneath that blanket, and she was the other survivor. And I yelled in her face, "Are you okay?" And she opened her eyes, and, and I yelled at her that she was one of the better ones off, that we needed to get some of the really injured people out. <laughs> and in the meantime, the, the, the helicopter that had just landed, I asked him to go get a Stokes litter. By the way, these are all Air America guys. It's not a, there's no American military over there. And so they brought back a litter. We put the lady on there, and I did see her at the Clark Hospital, so she did survive. I don't know who it was uh, from ethnic, my opinion, maybe, maybe Guamanian. I don't know who it was. Filipino, I don't, I don't know. That's the after shot of the, uh, the uh, burn area. That's the wing burned, and, and this is one of the engines. Once again, troop compartment, car, wing burn area off. You can see parts of Saigon in the, in the distance, North Saigon. You can see how the troop compartment kind of went in like a toboggan. 
that flat access panel is where Sergeant Parker ended up. And uh, I know Sergeant Snedeker stabilized him to the point where we could medevac him to Tripler in, in uh, Hawaii, uh, where he was medically retired before he did die of his injuries. His, his body was inside this compartment. His head was hanging out in, in this area here when I got to him. And he was not conscious. I, I tried to talk to him. I knew he was alive, but he never shown, he didn't show any reaction to me. So uh, I'm not sure what kind of condition he was in at that time. The top of his head was missing and it, it was, it looked, it was bad. I knew that, I, but he was alive at that time. And like he says, he lived for 17 days. That's an overhead shot just to give you a little perspective. I realize it's hard to see what we're looking at, but that's the tail. Troop compartment. And then we're over in the corner. But mostly what that does is that gives you a chance to see the, the Saigon area and the Tonsonute area. So we had an exciting time. 12 minutes out, 12 minutes back. Logged in the 781. Ray and I were the last ones to leave. And we went, uh, uh, we got on helicopter and went back and and I, I said, talked to the folks, I said, can I get to a telephone? And, you know, I really felt like I had just wrecked dad's car and I really needed to tell him. So we went back and we went into this blue carpeted uh, uh, general's office and I remember thinking, my God, I'm a slob here. I'm messing up slogging water in on his carpet. I just felt badly about that. And uh, we, we called back to tell the general that, that you know, what we knew and then we went off to join some of the other folks that had been evacuated. The rest of the crew had gone to the 7th Adventist Hospital, 7th Adventist Hospital, uh, just to be checked out and make sure that those who were uh, not injured weren't yeah. really hurting. And then, then the Air Force sent in a, a C-9 that night and took some of the injured back to Clark. So I was one of the ones that went back to Clark that night. So by midnight, I was back at Clark, but I had flown back on a C-9. And I don't know what the the count was in terms of the numbers that they took back on the C-9, but um, they used the C-9 alert crew, actually been alerted for another mission, got diverted in flight to come in and pick up some of the survivors of the C-5. They were not told what their mission was till they got there. So they had no idea why they were being diverted from the alert mission that they were started out on and then ended up coming to Saigon. When they landed, then they were told, the, the flight crew and the mid crew, and that med crew was an alert med crew, so it was one nurse and two medical technicians. And they brought some of us back to Clark to the hospital that night. Right, right. Well, I, I, they had us stay, I don't know where you stayed. I stayed in the Gray House. Were you I there too? You. Okay, and uh, I remember that was this big, burly guy. I mean, he's right off of the movie Air America, big guy. And he's got this big gold chain. He obviously got in Laos someplace. And he's got a big case of Bud Light. <laughs> or Budweiser beer or something. He said, man, that was tremendous. Boom, here's some beer. Have it. And boy, was there ever anything I did not want, it was a beer. And so, slam, door's gone. I'm in this bare BOQ. Uh, there's nothing in it but a bed, a chest of drawers, green walls, a big air conditioner, and a bathroom with 12-foot ceilings. And I remember going in and turning on the shower and it took about five minutes, it seemed, for the water to leave that shower head and come down and fall on me. And it was cold water, just cold. Didn't care. 
I took the thing and I walked back out and I realized I was freezing cold and didn't do a pre-flight, there was no towel. <laughs> so I grabbed the sheet, wrapped myself up in the sheet and said, you know, I'm probably going into shock and lay down on the bed, put my feet up on the wall and went to sleep for about 10 minutes before the first telephone call. Are you talking to the press? They want to know. They called the because it's daytime back there, it's nighttime for me. I remember that bare room as being a good place to reflect and, and think back of what you could have done, should have done, and uh, cry a little bit. 